Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine as Kyiv endures another night of drone attacks. We discuss a diplomatic fallout between Ukraine and Poland and analyse changing Russian strategy over the full-scale invasion. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our team is reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 3rd of August. One year and 160 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, and Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So the drone wars are continuing this week. So Russia said it's down seven drones in the Kaluga region. So this is we're about 150 k's southwest of Moscow now. Seven drones last night. Somewhat predictably, the Russian Defense Ministry said it had foiled a terrorist attack. No casualties reported there. Then Kiev last night, around 15 Russian drones shot down through a three-hour onslaught, second strike on the capital in as many days. Now, I mean, these attacks obviously weren't comparable to the nasty terrorist drone attacks launched by Ukraine. These are, I guess, humanitarian drone attacks, but no damage or casualties reported there either. Uh, Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister, Alexander Kubrakov, he spoke yesterday, he said, oh, sorry, this morning, he said that the drone att- Russian drone attacks uh, early yesterday morning, which included hitting the Ismail port on the Danube River, just a few hundred metres from Romania, the other side of the river, obviously, he said they damaged that those attacks damaged almost 40,000 tonnes of grain, which were due to be due to go to Africa, China, Israel. Now, connected to that... In a letter seen by uh, the French media outlet AFP, Agence France Press, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, he's told G20 diplomats that Russia's agricultural sector is the main beneficiary of Moscow's withdrawal from the UN-brokered grain deal. 
He said, uh, quote, Russia will further benefit from higher food prices and increase its own market share in the global grain market by severely limiting its main competitor's capacity to export. So this letter was written on Monday, but only seen by AFP today. He said Russia was now offering vulnerable developing nations discounted grain, as in his words, they are trying to they are pretending to solve a problem they've created themselves. This is a cynical policy of deliberately using food as a weapon to create new dependencies by exacerbating economic vulnerabilities and global food insecurity, he said. He thinks Russia could be persuaded to return to the deal if the international community speaks with a clear and unified voice. Now, elsewhere on the front, it's difficult to get news every day or even uh, many days running through the week. But from what I can make out, Russia is still pushing hard in the northeast around uh, Kremina. So this is we're now about 40 k's north of Bakhmut, sort of north-northeast-ish. And Ukraine still focusing on the south, trying to push towards the Sea of Azov. Little change in the lines in either place. Now, let's, let's move to Kazakhstan. Adverts have been appearing for offering an immediate payment of over around around five thousand dollars for joining the uh, Russian army, these have been popping up on on the internet for Kazakh Kazakh internet users, getting all these uh, all these pop ups, just like you know those dating apps for that Francis keeps getting. Um, the former Soviet Republic that borders Russia, home to three million ethnic Russians, has been traditionally one of Russia's closest allies, but there have been moves, maybe, do I say, a little half-hearted. I mean, James speaks much more knowledge beyond this than I do, um, our colleague James Kilner. Uh, perhaps a little half-hearted um, moves by President Tokayev of, uh, of Kazakhstan to distance the country from Russia, Putin, the war, all those three to various degrees. It's not uh, he and, and the, the country has not supported the war, for example, came calling for peace very early on and not peace on ridiculous Russian terms. But anyway, this reporting comes from Reuters. They've seen these ads that are clearly targeting Kazakhs. These ads feature Russian and Kazakh flags and the slogan shoulder to shoulder. They promise a one-off payment of what's that, 495,000 rubles, about 5,500 US dollars. To anyone who signs a contract with a Russian military, along with a monthly salary of about or at least 190,000 rubles, 2,000 US dollars. I mean, Russia's problem with personnel continues. They went for that sort of partial mobilization last year. It did not go down well. Massive flights of fighting age males from the country and um, a rise in these sites offering to help people get out of the country. So Putin's doing everything he can to get warm bodies to turn into warm bodies or cold bodies um, but he's struggling to get the the personnel for the for the um, for the military so this is yet another another um, attempt here to uh, to get the numbers up without without going for another mobilization now finally uh, in the in the update um, a senior official from Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has said Russia may consider withdrawing its tactical nuclear weapons from Belarus if the US and NATO end their hostile policy, in their words, towards Moscow and Minsk. So this is Alexei Polishuk, who's in charge of the department dealing with relations with Belarus, Moldova and Ukraine. Um, he, de- he described Russia's decision to, to place nuclear weapons in Belarus as a necessary measure to shore up the security of both Moscow and Minsk, of course. He said Russia is sending nuclear weapons to Belarus in response to the years of destabilizing nuclear policies by NATO and Washington, as well as the fundamental changes that have recently taken place in key areas of European security. He didn't spell out that these fundamental 
changes the result of Russia's invasion, but then you can't have everything. He went on. However, well, there's more. However, the weapons could potentially be withdrawn if the US and NATO reverse their destructive course and remove America's nuclear arsenal from Europe and dismantle its infrastructure. Now, retired US General Ben Hodges, chap we've had on the pod, he said on on in a tweet or a or whatever we're supposed to call it these days that this is classic Russian behavior to uh, escalate a situation in order to demand concessions from the West for them to de-escalate. Uh, and he points out that the, the deployment of these tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus has done nothing to increase the likelihood of them being used or improve the effectiveness of the weapon anyway. It's just there to rattle our cages and to try and get concessions. You know, you just, they just you march up the hill, look for concessions. I think we are alive to that now. I think the, the international community is alive to that. don't think it's going to work here, but it's just... It just, just, yeah, we see it time and time again. I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much, Dom. Natalia, can I go to you? I know you wanted to say a few things about uh, this news that Dom reported in Kazakhstan, uh, and then we can go on to this diplomatic spat between Poland and Ukraine. Sure. Yes, I was quite surprised actually to hear about those um, advertisements in Kazakhstan since it's been, um, I mean, the war has been going on, what, for 17 months. And a lot of officials in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and other neighboring countries have been quite vocal about their their citizens potentially being recruited, about them coming up as volunteers. And I just came up, came, came across this, a recent statement by the Kazakh foreign ministry. So their spokesman just a couple of months ago, he, he made, made a public statement around the time when um, a Kazakh man has been identified as a Wagner fighter. And apparently there were reports about how this man ended up in Ukraine, whether he was, he may have been abducted and he was forced to go there or went there voluntarily. So the foreign ministry spokesman at the time said, quote, guys, this is not your war. You need to be careful and think about your relatives. And he also quoted Kazakh legislation, just like other officials in other former Soviet countries who, who said that anyone who would decide to join a military conflict in another country could be facing anything from up five to five to nine years in prison. So whoever placed those ads in Kazakhstan, they should definitely be aware of the fact that they're breaking the law, that they're basically encouraging people not only go and fight and, and kill Ukrainians, but also there would be no legal way for them to come back unless they were coming back home to prison. Yeah, and another story I wanted to talk about today is is not something I expected at all to cover in, in any time soon. And this is a diplomatic spat between Poland and Ukraine that has been brewing in, in recent days. Quite quite unusual because we saw that even since before the invasion, ties between Poland and Ukraine have been incredibly warm. Zelensky went to Poland on one of his first foreign visits since the since the invasion. The Polish ambassador was famously I think the last diplomat to stay in Kiev when the when the invasion started. Poland has been a, a incredibly important logistics hub for the war effort, be it humanitarian aid, supplies, or or weapons. Poland also hosted at some point saw something like twelve million Ukrainian refugees pass through. There's um 
obviously um, just a fraction of them remain, but there is still some something between 1.2 and 1.4 million Ukrainians who live in Poland as refugees. And in the middle of that, we have this major diplomatic scandal when uh, first Ukraine summons a um, po- the Polish ambassador in Kiev and um, a day later on Tuesday, Poland summoned the Ukrainian ambassador. So that happened. So this, the conflict, basically, the, the, the scandal started developing over the weekends when uh, a um, top Poland official was speaking to, to top Polish official, sorry, was speaking to local media. And uh, specifically, he was talking about quite a thorny issue in Poland right now, which is sales of uh, Ukrainian grain, of Ukrainian sunflower seeds and, and rape seeds. There's currently a ban on um, Ukrainian commodities inside Poland, just like in Slovakia, Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria. That was quite an unusual step that was taken by those five con- countries with the explicit permission of the EU. That ban was first imposed in May when it turned out that there was quite a surplus of Ukrainian wheat and corn in those countries. And those countries were basically complaining that their own domestic markets are being squeezed because there's this glut of Ukrainian produce that local produce producers could not compete. Now, the EU has signed on onto this ban that would ban the sale of Ukrainian wheat in those countries until September. And I think there were expectations in Kiev that Poland, as a major ally, would lift the ban and would allow those sales to to go ahead. But a senior Polish official in a recent interview suggested that Warsaw needs to put the interests of its farmers first and that the ban, which is supposed to expire in, in the middle of September, should should stay in place. Around the same time, another diplomat basically complains about Ukraine being ungrateful, saying that U- Ukraine need to take a step back and see how much support Poland has been giving it. And, quote, appreciate the role Poland has played for Ukraine in recent months and years. Now, that statement apparently irked a lot of officials in Kiev. They summoned the Polish ambassador after which the Polish president, prime minister issued a very angry statement saying that that is not something he expected, that from an ally and a friendly nation like Ukraine, um, they, they summoned the Ukrainian ambassador the following day. And that's, that story is still developing. Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has somewhat tried to defuse the tension. He did not comment on the... On the actual on the actual issue of Ukrainian grain sales, but he just made it clear that Poland that Ukraine does appreciate Poland's help, and he lauded Poland for acting as a quote real shield of Europe during the war. He also took a stab at unnamed politicians trying to score political points ahead of elections, and Poland Poland is. Um, uh, facing a major elections next year, but that's still an unresolved conflict. And uh, p- p- political Poland's political elite made it very clear that yes, they are supporting Ukraine in the war as much as they can. They would be supporting with lobbying at the EU level, with supplies of weapons, provide um, serving as a logistics hub. But also, they made it very clear that they have their own national interest at heart. And as um, as a as a um, Deputy Foreign Minister recently put it that Poland will support Ukraine only and as much as it is consistent with its own national interest and that they were not going to do anything to damage the interests of their local farmers. 
Well, thank you very much, Natalia. That was very comprehensive. Joe, as Brussels correspondent, what's your view on this? What would you like to add? Hi, folks. And uh, no, I, I think what's really interesting about this spat is the word gratitude has come up again. So if we heart, cast our minds back to the NATO summit in Vilnius when Ben Wallace's comments turned into this diplomatic spat where he suggested that Ukraine should probably show a bit more gratitude to its Western allies for the military support. Words of the same effect were said by uh, Jake Sullivan, the US um, national security advisor. And what's interesting is those words have now cropped up again. So it appears that NATO, NATO's big players, uh, mainly the US, has managed to gather a um, enough sort of support within NATO for this sort of maybe a line to take. So Poland has now towed the line and suggested, look, Ukraine, like you're going to have to be careful with your like your rhetoric and your your um, diplomacy with the West because we're essentially funding and running your operation. You might be fighting, but we're the ones supplying you with the weapons. And I think that is essentially the message that Poland has has tried to put across by taking the US and UK approach to explaining gratitude. Whether Ukraine or Kyiv likes it or not, I think that's sort of a, a line that's here to take as the more difficult months approach when we go into sort of the UK elections, which I don't think is going to factor because Labour and the Conservatives basically sing off the same hymn sheet when it comes to support for Ukraine. But in America, the Republicans aren't as supportive um, and the likes of the UK, Joe Biden and other sort of NATO powers acutely aware that America could soon maybe not completely change its tone, but it could it could not be as supportive as possible. So I think that line about gratitude is, is now here to stay for a while. Thanks, Joe. Can we move to talk a little bit more about the ongoing attacks on uh, Ukrainian grain infrastructure? Uh, you've been covering this for The Telegraph this week. What have you noticed about the sort of changing tactics employed by the Russian military? Yeah, so as everyone knows quite well, because you guys covered it very comprehensively on the podcast yesterday, Ukraine was forced to close a key river port. So that was yesterday on Wednesday as Russia essentially intensified its attacks, targeting the best and last remaining routes out of the country for grain. What we saw was the port of Ismail, an inland port on the Danube River, and it's just across from NATO member Romania. So what was actually interesting, as I made reference in my piece, there were videos floating around on social media of these drone attacks on these Ukrainian grain silos from a, a, a place, and excuse my, I think it's pronounced Tulsir, in uh, just over the Danube in Romania. So it is really, really close to NATO territory, like hundreds of meters. Um, so that is one, just to show how, is it flamboyant, uh, risk averse or risk, how unrisk averse Russia is seeming to uh, get now. But let, let's look at like actually the tactical evolution of, of Russia's attacks. So we had the attacks on critical and infrastructure and sort of the energy grid in over before the winter months and into the winter, hoping to basically freeze Ukrainians into submission didn't work. Then Russian forces essentially decided let's go hell for leather, let's really try and smash Kyiv. So when I was, I was there in May and June, I think there was 13 consecutive nights where there was sort of mass bombardments on the Ukrainian capital. And those attacks seemed 
like out of desperation rather than any sort of tactical now. So we're literally throwing tens of millions of dollars of cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, uh, these Iranian-made drones, basically whatever they could get their hands on, they were trying to throw it at, at Kiev. But it was all being relatively successfully defended by Kiev's like, bolstered air defence systems with these Patriots, the uh, systems, the uh, IRST's from Germany, the NASAMs and such. So there was very minimal impact. It didn't affect anything on the ground. It, it wasn't going to convince Ukraine to surrender. But the, the, the evolution of Russian strikes and long-range strikes has now seemingly taken us to the point where Russia has not been able to basically pulverise Ukraine into submission. It's not being able to freeze it into submission. Is it now going to basically try and starve it of cash? It's looking at targeting its main export, which is grain. So Ukraine, uh, like Russia as well, before the war were considered sort of the breadbaskets of the world. One of the breadbaskets, two of the breadbaskets of the world. Shipping vast, vast, vast quantities of, of grains to the developing world and elsewhere. So... Since Russia pulled out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, that's the deal brokered by the UN and Turkey, which essentially let ship, ship, shipments out of Odessa, through the Black Sea, through the Bosphorus Strait, and out into the world. Russia pulled out of that and then started bombing first export hubs on that Black Sea coast. It began targeting the port of Odessa at started blockading the water again. It wouldn't let ships through. So basically that route dried up. So then Ukraine started using its smaller inland ports on the Danube, which as a vital basically route for foodstuffs. That before the war was didn't happen. So that was a, a new innovation. So basically over the last year, these Danube ports have seen a considerable increase in the volume of traffic which passed through them. And it basically reflects Ukraine's sort of desire to use this the river routes as a back door to the world and also i think what's interesting here and a, a sort of nod to sitarf kushel at rusi who helped talk me through this yesterday that actually since russia lost control of snake island the russian fleet hasn't really had the ability to block shipping going through the danube so basically look that's really highlighting its in, importance here so now what we're getting in that evolution of tactics where Russia cannot control the waters through blockades, it's now starting to bomb those ports and hopefully in its eyes damage any hope that Ukraine has of exporting grains from there. And there was some really interesting sort of commercial shipping data that emerged yesterday. It showed dozens of international ships halting and dropping anchor in the mouth of the Danube Basically, many, many of them were registered to arrive in Ismail from the, from the Black Sea, basically using, it to, using that route to circumnavigate Russia's blockade. But they essentially, as soon as those attacks hit, like that, that route stopped. So what uh, Russia has achieved is basically stopping any grains going out of Ukraine. There is another route, and they are essentially called the EU Solidarity Lanes. They are overland routes into the European Union countries, which is what Poland has been complaining about. And so Ukraine could essentially travel, or sorry, transport its grains via rail or road through into the European Union, and the European Union will take care of that. As we know, Poland's complaint is that while the, the grains 
basically end up dumped in Poland, Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, and I think it was Slovakia, the other uh, land border country, which is all well and good that like, tons of grain, tens of millions of tons of grain get kind of left in those countries, given easy access into the single market, but they then have to, it's, it's really costly to, to transport overland routes are really costly for grain. It's not, it's not efficient. Um, and essentially those grains just don't get picked up and left there because why would you want to pay for the logistics of it when the Black Sea used to be the most efficient route? Um, so what is interesting is could overland routes now be targeted by Russia? Are they going to start looking at launching bombing campaigns against sort of critical railways that would be interesting because a lot of the kit that comes into ukraine from the west the military hardware is, is transported by rail and russia hasn't seemingly done anything to stop that yet so um but my my, my the guess here is that because the, the overland routes the increased cost and the political challenges so like the rows that ukraine has been having with poland is actually it's okay, Ru Russia perceived that to be okay to carry on it, but plays into their hands of this kind of the splits between Western NATO countries and Ukraine. So maybe they keep that open. But I just think it's an interesting way analyzing how Russian long range strikes have evolved throughout the conflict. And I'm sure talks are ongoing. Um, President Erdogan yesterday said that he had spoken with Putin about and expressed the importance of refraining from steps that could escalate tensions in the Russia-Ukraine war. I'm guessing that's striking right on the NATO border and emphasizing the significance of the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Russia has said it is willing to end the Black Sea blockade and rejoin talks on that deal, but with a certain amount of criteria. It said it, like the West basically must ease sanctions or on a, on a bank, it must allow a a bank involved in the payment of fertilizers to basically be added back to the SWIFT system. And it basically wants the world to, world to start buying Russian grains again and make it easy for Russian grains to be bought and sold, even though they're not sanctioned because you, Western countries don't really sanction foodstuffs. Basically, that is the excuse they are looking at. And I'll stop there for now. Thank you very much. Joe, and before that, Natalia, for those extremely comprehensive explanations from you both. Dom, can I come back to you? What do you make of Joe's explanation there, of this, this evolution of Russian, the Russian strategy? Well, I'd agree with that. I mean, it, it isn't an evolution in as much as they are trying things when, they're, when their first, second, third and fourth plans have been shown not to work. They'll try something else. So they're now, they're now just openly bombing grain silos and uh, going for the smaller ports, as, as Joe suggested. I mean, this doesn't. This shouldn't surprise us. They are they are out of ideas. They're out of a plan. They're 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 desperate. They just they, they just think they by smashing everything up that will eventually work. This is just a, another a side of that. This is this is that policy through the lens of grain. We've seen that policy through the lens of energy, and we've seen it through the lens of the battlefield. So there's nothing uh, nothing surprising here. I don't think the surprising thing will be whether or not it gets picked up by the by the international community and whether or not it's shown to be the utter sham that it is as as i as i described yesterday but i i um 
I won't I won't offer anything more than that because I've got a, I've got one thought on this for the for my final thought because I always forget to do a final thought and I actually thought about it today so um, I'll hold that that for now about how um, that response from yesterday. Thank you very much, Dom. Um, Joe Buns. Hi there. Uh, just um, a slightly interesting and left field story, I guess, looking at the impacts of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. And that is the uh, war in Ukraine has caused the country's birth rate to fall by almost a third, according to new statistics. In the first half of 2023, 96,755 children were born in Ukraine, compared with 135,000 two years previously, according to uh, analytics website Open Data Bot. Although births have been declining by about 7% a year for a decade, it marks the steepest since Ukraine gained independence in 1991. An average of 16,000 children were born per month this year, compared to an average of between 21 and 23,000 the year before. It's not rocket science why that happens. A lot of the, a lot of Ukrainian women have sought asylum in Europe and left their husbands behind to fight because as, as part of the martial law, in uh, basically invoked by Zelensky and his government, it meant men of fighting age weren't allowed to leave the country even if they weren't in the army. But women were free. Women and children were free to go. So there's obviously that element. But it, I, I just think it's a sad reality that. We're, we're, we're now in a situation where is Vladimir Putin getting his way on this front? We look at, we look at the idea where we look at the idea where Vladimir Putin was basically trying to wipe out a Ukrainian race that he didn't believe should exist. And now while he's deported children, he's killing innocent civilians, he's actually now through this war slightly slowing the birth rate down so it's a sort of a sad reality of everything uh, that is going on and so interestingly uh, a professor in demography Irina Pirelli Harris said Ukraine had one of the lowest birth rates on the planet and then war broke out so it's already affecting low birth rates even more so we're hopefully once the war is over in Ukraine of one that can start picking up again and it's just just something to like a small thing to look at that compiles onto all the sort of miseries that Ukrainians have had to face as a result of the invasion. Thanks Joe. Can we throw can we look at the same thing but in Russia Natalia what what's happening to the Russian birth rate at the moment? Yeah, if you were expecting things to be different in um, Russia, you would definitely be wrong. And that kind of statistics obviously um, shows you, tells you a lot about the country and tells you much more than what Vladimir Putin and his officials would want you to know. The latest on uh, birth rates in Russia we heard was in June this year. And according to the Russian Federal Statistic Agency, so this is official statistics, in April last year, Russia saw its lowest birth rate in 23 years. So since the, since the start of the 21st century, essentially. So that happens around the time when um, living standards in Russia have been on a rise before the war started. But obviously, when, when you look at that, when you look at um, how many children were born in April, um, which is what, 10 months after the war started, that tells you a lot about the mood in the country, that tells you a lot about 
um, how many people fled Russia because every time we hear from the Kremlin that we don't care about all of those musicians and pop stars and activists and journalists who fled Russia, but a lot of them are young. A lot of them would be at an age when they would be having children, and at least they're not in Russia to do that. So that's that that's that's quite a telling figure for Russia as well. Thank you, Natalia and Joe. Can we go, I think, now to our final thoughts? Dom Nichols, why don't you start? Thanks. So I asked yesterday how Russia would attempt to spin its way out of explaining why it was bombing the grain silos in Ukraine, particularly that one in Ismail on the Danube, attacks that obviously, as we know, as Joe's just been saying, harm some of the world's most deprived regions. Well, today we got an answer of sorts. So this came from RIR. RIA, Russia's state-owned news agency. They said today the, the, the retaliatory strikes have been launched after Ukraine hit the Chonar Bridge. You remember that? Uh, that was the, the, the strike a couple of weeks ago. The Chonar Bridge links uh, Hezon Oblast to Crimea. And of course, that was a terrorist attack. Everything's a terrorist attack. You've got to, um, we all know the script by now. Russia is reluctantly forced to defend itself against cruel NATO expansionism. Ukraine launches terrorist attacks. That's just how we are expected to consume this stuff. So RAI said that um, Russian armed forces uh, had to hit those the Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea, quote, including the places of production and storage of drone boats, ammo warehouses and fuel depots, unquote. So, yeah, right. Here we go, comrades. So they're not massive grain silos. They are, in reality, they are secret facilities building drone boats. They just had to wait uh, until Russia pulled out of the Black Sea grain deal before they could actually hit them. I mean, it's just it's nonsense. It's as desperate as it is disgusting, but it's utterly unsurprising and predictable. But I welcome the nonsense because the more they are forced to come out with this stuff, the more people in the world are are witnessing a witness to it. So those of us that have been looking at Russia for a long time, or Putin's version of Russia, have seen this stuff, and we talk about it amongst ourselves. Actually, now it's a wider audience that are being exposed to all this rubbish and nonsense. And just you have to be totally on the the Kremlin Kool Aid to then go, oh yeah, no, no, drone boats. Yeah, they're building drone boats in those big silos. <laughs> of course. I mean, the more people that hear this, well, the more normal minded people will will see it for what it is and hopefully that will that will have an effect in society it'll be slow it'll take a long time to turn that super tanker around but i think the, the more these this just garbage this laughable garbage is put out there the more your your average joe in the street in the wherever around the world will see it for what it is and so i do welcome that thank you dom uh joe barnes do you want to go next an interesting one to look out for, and it's maybe not a final thought that's going to give us results because it's one to look forward to, but there's over the weekend there was going to be a peace summit or sort of peace talks held by Saudi Arabia in Jeddah. And that seems interesting because Saudi Arabia is one of these countries that's stayed very neutral. It's basically refused to start the fight, but it's it's also positioned itself where it's helped facilitate prisoner transfers from a lot of the football from some soldiers captured in Mariupol I believe that Sean Pinner and one of the Brits sorry his name just slipped out of my mind Aiden Aiden Aslim they were they were freed as part of a Saudi sort of led operation and there is going to be these peace talks in Saudi Arabia in Jeddah over the weekend involving the US, Ukraine, 
European countries, but also that Saudi Arabia seems hopeful that it can pick up the support of China and, and Brazil, who have, again, stayed out of it and they've sided with Russia on, at, at certain times and they've deliberately tried to posi- position themselves as neutral countries. Why do I think this is interesting? Um, and for those that like football, soccer to our American listeners, Saudi, Saudi Arabia has been hoovering up a lot of the best talent and if they're, even if they're aging, in a, basically trying to create this Saudi Super League of football, soccer, whatever we want to call it. It's been using sport for a long time. It's invested heavily in boxing. It's invested heavily in motor racing, basically to transform its image and diversify its economy. And I, I, I think, and this is just my assumption, I've not spoken to anyone on it, but it looks like the next sort of Saudi target for basically creating itself as a, as a hub destination, as a, one of the sort of the, the best economies in the world is some sort of peace washing. And does the Crown Prince bin Mohammed, so, well, sorry, what's his name, Mohammed Saudan, does he think his close relationship with Vladimir Putin will play into that and he will be able to actually convince Vladimir Putin to, to agree to some sort of peace deal and peace formula? So I, I think it's interesting that Saudi Arabia is almost jumping on this at the moment to try and potentially improve its own image, but it is one of the countries that does have a genuine connection to Russia and has a sort of a good relationship with Russia at a time when the West is completely at odds with Moscow. So it's a, it'd be interesting to look out and see how that turns out over the weekend. Thank you very much, Dom and Joe. Uh, Natalia, would you like the very final words? This might be something that you uh, guys covered in podcasts earlier this week. I wasn't around, but I thought it's quite important to bring it up now. Over the past months, we have relied both on Ukrainian and Russian sources on the war. And strangely enough, a lot of pro-Kremlin bloggers have been quite candid and open about Russian losses, about Russian withdrawals, and often... As uh, things were progressing on the front line, as, for example, Ukraine, Ukrainian forces were gaining ground, we would hear a confirmation from Russian pro-Kremlin bloggers who would send videos or report from the scene. And for us journalists, it was really helpful. But I'm afraid this weekend we started to see a very uncomfortable trend when... Um, uh, there is a feeling that Russian pro-Kremlin bloggers who are, of course, openly cheering this horrible invasion, that they are themselves are now under pressure not to report Russia's losses. There was a bombing of the Chongar Bridge that links the Crimean Peninsula to the Kherson region. And this is something that previously Russian military bloggers would have reported on extensively. They would use all of their rich swear word vocabulary to blame it on Ukrainians. But this time they were, there was an eerie quietness in, in, Russian, in the Russian blogosphere. And there's a suggestion that that's a way that Kremlin is trying to crack down on this kind of freedom of speech in Russia. And also, you know, you take one of our best sources on the war in recent months, Igor Girkin, who was very critical about the war. He has been cheering on the invasion. He has basically been seeking the destruction of Ukraine. But he was actually a very useful source and um, very candid about Russian losses, about where the front line was going. And in, in a lot of ways, he has been more reliable on that. 
than the defense ministry, for example. And now Igor Girkin is in, is in prison. So we've been talking a lot about fog of war in this conflict. And right now it looks like it's going to be more di- getting more difficult to get this kind of information, especially as it concerns Crimea. So which is going to have to do more work to to verify information and keep an eye on what what's happening around Crimea whereas wh- while we see that Russian bloggers are under pressure not to report Ukrainian advances there Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the Telegraph you can get your first 3 months for just 1 pound at www.telegraph .co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.